Simmons, Ratchat, and multi-award winning first therapeutic major of the Lead Oncology Podcast. Welcome to podcast number 119. My name's Jay McMara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Tatum Duroc, who talked about shine cancer support and the role of yoga in cancer care. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest, Amy Cohen-Epstein, who will be discussing the Lynn Cohen Foundation that she founded. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So, Amy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what the Lynn Cohen Foundation is? Absolutely. Um Thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you guys across the pond from sunny but chilly Los Angeles this morning. And like you said, my name is Amy Cohen Epstein, and I founded, along with my siblings actually, the Lynn Cohen Foundation when our mom passed away from ovarian cancer in 1998. She was 53 years old when she died. She was 48 years old when she was diagnosed. So she lived for five years fighting the disease, which is actually quite remarkable. Most women who survive for five years make it. Very few women last for five years fighting the disease and then pass away. So we can get into that later. And when she died, I was 21 years old. My siblings were young too. My sister was 22. My little brother was 15. And my older sister was 28. And it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. My family said we need to do something to honor our mom. She she was truly an incredible woman. Um, she was an incredible mother, but she was a really special human being. And she dedicated the majority of her life to helping other people and to being incredibly involved in her community and giving back. So we needed to do ab- something to keep her name, her honor, and her memory alive. And there was a doctor who was her doctor. His name was Franco Muja, and he was a director of gynecologic oncology at USC Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center in Los Angeles. So we immediately started this foundation. We actually, people donated money when my mom was, when instead of like bringing muffins to our house <laughs> after her funeral, people gave money, and we immediately gave that to Dr. Muja, um, who was deeply involved in research for ovarian cancer. About two years after that, I was 23 years old and kind of a baby, and it was about the year 2000, 2001-ish, and I was actually living in New York, and I decided this is what I wanted to do with my life. I was working for an educational technology startup, as lots of us were in New York at that time, and the company asked me to run their nonprofit, and I thought, well, I don't really, I'm not passionate about that. I'm passionate about this and about women's health and wellness and preventive care. So I said to my family, I'm going to do this. This is going to be my life's work. And they said, go for it. So I changed the foundation from a private family foundation to a public 501c3 and was incredibly fortunate to be surrounded by really brilliant people in the medical community and in sort of the advisory role that people took. So I created a medical advisory board and an advisory board that helped me in terms of really organizing and structuring the foundation and learning how to do whatever I was going to do. I was 23 years old. I had literally no experience. And 26 years later, the Lynn Cohen Foundation really still thrives. We've survived a lot of things, economic downturns, global pandemics, um, a lot of ups and downs. But we've always been able to adapt and create new ways of reaching women 
and also supporting our preventive care clinics, which is the heart and soul of the foundation. What does a day in the life look like for you, Amy? I'm intrigued. Well, I have three teenage boys. Uh, My oldest is in college. My middle son's a senior in high school. My youngest is in eighth grade. He's 14, almost 14. So a lot of my day is structured around my family and running this organization. So I wake up. I pretty much always do some sort of workout. I believe really passionately in staying strong and healthy. So whatever works for me. I know one of your last guests talked about yoga and how that can help you fight disease. I believe in yoga, Pilates, I walk, I I do everything that I can. I'm getting a little older, so I have to push myself a little harder. And then I sort of knuckle down and I talk to the people that I work with. Um, we always have an event coming up, whether it be a large fundraising event or a webinar or a podcast, or we do a lot of in-person Um, what I call like an in-person webinar where we bring in an expert in the field of really broadly women's health, wellness, or preventive care to talk to a group of women. And we do that for audiences that range in the age of 20 to 82. Um, So I'm getting ready for one of those or preparing or thinking ahead. And then I spend a lot of time with my family. Um, You know, I learned really early on that loss can be very real And my mom died when I was really young. My little brother was only 15 years old. So I always wanted children. And I was very adamant that I would be there for them and create a profession in which I could do everything I needed to do and get it all done without without sacrificing um, my time with them. And, And I've been able to do that. And I'm really, I'm happy about that. I'm almost 50 and I look back and that makes me feel really good. I mean, how did you feel kind of obviously losing your mum, but also kind of being then made aware maybe more about genetics, genomics, you know, how has that shaped you and your health and your family's health? It's a really good question. So I believe knowledge is power. And I believe that sticking your head in the sand is a really, um, is not a great choice in the way to live and sort of just hoping for the best. So my mom was negative for the BRCA gene mutation, BRCA1 or 2, which puts women at really increased risk for breast or ovarian cancer. And my sisters and I all tested and we we do not have the gene, we're negative. But only 15% of women who get breast or ovarian cancer are genetically predisposed. So that's, you know, really eye-opening. So to me, it was learning about genetics, learning about family history, and then what can you do to keep yourself healthy because preventive care to me is is really the answer. I mean, there's there's amazing research that goes on and sort of like last ditch efforts and, you know, different therapies and chemotherapies and radiations. But I I've been passionate and have and really worked in this space of preventive care. And so you learn a lot. You learn a lot about nutrition and fitness and ways of life. And I've tried to find the true experts, people who have really done the scientific research in those fields. And I personally have tried to live as best as I can within reason um, and moderation um, in those ways. So that at least if something does come along my way, I can say, you know, I've done everything I can to be healthy. And so I'm going to, I'm going to attack this problem head on, knowing that my body's in the best shape it can be. 
It's a very positive way to look at things, considering what happened at such Thanks. a young age. I try. Some days it's hard. And, you know, that I just had an incredible conversation with a dear friend of mine who lost her mom not to cancer when she was really young. And, and she's done her life's work about really keeping her mom's memory alive and her legacy alive. And we talked about how that's really healing and it's been very healing for me. And it's also like this odd way of becoming the mother of your mother's legacy and of your mother's life. And I never really gave that much conscious thought for the last two and a half decades, but it's true. And so it's taught me so much about the meaning of of life and what she lived for and what she stood for and having the privilege of of keeping that alive while doing something really positive and helping as many women as as we can. So I try to stay positive. Some days aren't so easy. <laughs> If someone is listening and they're thinking, you know, what does this foundation do? How how can I get involved? How can I benefit from it? How, how would you kind of circumvent those questions? So the heart and soul of what we do are, are our preventive care clinics, in which we have four. So they're in the United States. We have two in New York, one at NYU um, and one at Bellevue Hospital. And two in Los Angeles, one at USC Norris Cancer Center and one at L.A. County Hospital. So Bellevue and L.A. County are two county hospitals attached to private research institutions. And our, the women that come through our clinics see a gynecologic oncologist, a breast oncologist, a genetic counselor, and there's genetic, counsel, genetic testing if wanted, needed, um, and desired to, to have that and have that knowledge. And so women come through our clinics and, and one day have a like a full array of, of knowledge that they are giving these doctors that then turn around, talk about it, and give it back to the women and say, this is your actual risk for cancer, and here's what we can do to keep you healthy. So you, you, meet, you see a gynecologic oncologist, you have an exam, a breast oncologist, you, there's mammograms and pelvic ultrasounds if necessary, and then... You go through your entire family history as best you can and decide if genetic testing is is something that you want. That's like we said earlier, I said earlier, knowledge to me is power. There's some people who choose not to know, um, but our doctors really encourage women to, to know so they can create a plan that's best for them. And that's the heart and soul of our clinics. And the reason why I mentioned Bellevue in L.A. County is because almost nearly half of the women that we see and that we've seen in the last 20 plus years are underserved, under uninsured minority women. And that's the way we set it up from the beginning. And we felt really passionately about that. That was something um, that my mom would have done. So it was sort of a no brainer. And so women come in from all backgrounds and get a real picture of what their health looks like in regards to sort of their family, what it means. We have a lot of women who come in with something else and are driven towards our clinic and learn about what their breast health risk is, what their ovarian cancer risk is, and get real powerful information on how to make good decisions. That's really the nuts and bolts of what we do. The educational platform to me is like this incredible added bonus that we've worked on in the last decade, but our preventive care clinics are really the way to go. So anyone 
you know, around the world that has the ability to get to New York or Los Angeles, but also, you know, in this incredible day and age, you there's so much we can do remotely. And the we, people that we work with, the medical professionals that I work with are, they're incredible human beings. I mean, besides being so smart and so passionate about what they do, and all of the doctors in our clinics are clinicians, so they see patients. These are people who are in the trenches. A lot of them do research as well. They will have, they will look at scans. I've, I've sent them scans from patients and friends of mine who live in the Middle East, and they will look at all their information and work with them over the, you know, over Zoom or whatever it is, and then guide them towards where the best place they can go that might be more, you know, a little bit more, a little bit easier for them to get to. Can I ask what might be a silly question? So with someone who comes to the preventative care clinic, if they're the first in their family to maybe test positive, what happens to future I don't know, people within their family, can they all somehow gain testing through it as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. The first prerequisite to come in is um, a history of of cancer in your family. So if you've had any history of cancer in your family, obviously this is for women, um, then you can come in and you're eligible to go through our clinic. So if you have a genetic history, then anyone in your family should come in and find out absolutely what their what their genetic code means. And the interesting thing, you know, going back to that genetics, genomics, how do you, does that make you feel? When I did testing, it was over 20 years ago, and they really only tested me for BRCA 1 and 2 and a few other genetic mutations. You know, two and a half decades later, there are a lot of genetic mutations that doctors know about. The panel has grown. And so you can test for a lot, and it can give you a real indicator of your future, um, which can be really scary, but it can also be really powerful. In addition, we have women that come through, women like myself and my sisters, who tested negative for a genetic mutation that predisposes breast ovarian cancer, but our family history is significant, even just my mother, because she was diagnosed so young at 48 with ovarian cancer that we are in that high-risk category. So the way we're treated is as if we have a genetic mutation because we fall into that category, which is, you know, something a lot of women sort of don't think about or say, I'm, I'm good, I'm, you know, it's not, I don't have a gen- gene and so I'm, I'm good to go. Um, but the doctors we work with really see women as a whole person and take a very holistic approach and offer advice that, that goes down that road, which I, I think is... 100% the way to do it. In terms of the medical profession out in America, and um, I know obviously we've got lots of listeners here in the UK, would you have to have medical insurance to be able to access everything that goes on or is it anyone, anywhere can access through the foundation? That's why we were really, um, Adam, it's the wrong word, but really supportive of having our clinics be available through the two county hospitals in New York and Los Angeles, because in the county hospitals, we get a lot of women who are underserved and many are uninsured or have minimal insurance. And we absolutely see them and they have access to all that we have to offer um, because I fundraise and because the fundraising is able to to make that happen. So, you know, that's 
that's the hard part on the fundraising end. But for me, an easy sell, like, you know, these are women whose lives we've saved, we've changed. And as you were kind of indicating earlier, Naman, this is their whole family. You know, this is generations to come. So if you if you kind of are able to to have one woman take a turn in the right direction, it absolutely gives a positive ripple effect to their children, their grandchildren, their nieces, their, you know, everyone that, that comes after, I think. I'm intrigued. Do you have any public health kind of agendas in America? Because I know here in the UK, you know, you might be sitting on a bus and you'll be staring up at a screen and it will come up with, you know, have you undergone your bowel screening um, or have you checked your breasts? Um, is that something that you routinely would see in America? It's a really good question. Um, in terms of women's health specifically, so obviously there's huge anti-smoking campaigns and now there's, you know, everything that is taken the place of smoking. There's a lot of that going on. Um, but in terms of women's health specifically, there's a lot of breast cancer awareness. Um, there's been big organizations that have done a great job, non-governmental and governmental, and I applaud them. You know, pink is now a worldwide sort of color for breast health and major organizations in the United States stand behind it. So you have Major League Baseball, you know, during the month of October is every guy's wearing pink socks. They've got a pink ribbon on their hat. I mean, it's a big deal. And NFL, National Football League, our, our American football, I should say, or as my British friends call it, the gridiron, um, the non-sport. But you have that. I mean, you have every huge organizations that get, have gotten behind breast cancer awareness, and so you do see campaigns in that way. You see it, yes, in public transportation. Not usually have you checked your breast or it's important, but, but you'll, it, it is definitely out there. Ovarian cancer, not so much. Um, why? It affects a lot less women. So, you know, about a quarter of a million women will be diagnosed with breast cancer every year in the United States. And about 35,000, 40,000 will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer. But ovarian cancer is very deadly. Almost, you know, if it's not caught in the early stages, it's a it's a very terrible outcome. And so I think, you know, I've been trying to to raise awareness and lots of us have, but it's a tough it's a tough subject to talk about. You know, not very many people want to talk about women's gynecologic health. Um and what sort of is affecting that part of our bodies. It's it's a tougher conversation, I think, even than breast health. Um, so there's also interesting things about breast health, which is when I was young, when I was growing up in high school, on the back of every, almost every bathroom door was a, um, in my college too, it was like a placard that showed you how to do a self-breast, a self-breast exam. And that was pretty ubiquitous. That was all over the United States. And then I think, because of insurance, um, it sort of went off. It fell by the wayside. And there was a sort of undercurrent saying that there were too many false positives and too many women were coming to get their breasts checked and too many women were and demanding mammograms early um, or even a biopsy. And so they sort of that whole campaign ended. And it really bummed me out. And it still bums me out because self-breast exams are – a really important tool. They're not the only tool, but they're certainly an important tool. And a lot of young women don't even know how to do them. 
Um, they just sort of wait if they see their gynecologist to, to do their annual exam. And then you had this really, you know, sort of fallout because of COVID where you have three years of lots of people canceling lots of appointments and lots of meetings with doctors. But you had a lot of women who did not have any annual exams during those years, who didn't see a gynecologist, who didn't have a pap smear, which checks for cervical cancer, not ovarian cancer, who didn't have a pelvis exam, who didn't have a breast check um, for almost three to four years. And women more than men, because we were during that time, at least in my experience in the United States, we were in charge of everything. So we were doing, you know, we were working, we were taking care of our kids at home. We were, you know, I was cooking 17 meals a day. (laughs) I was cleaning everything. And so the idea that I could then take time out to go see my doctor, I did, but not very many people I know did and not very many people I don't know did. And it's not, it's, you don't just pick up where you left off with those things. It takes a while to, um, to come back to normal, to come back to sort of where you need to be in terms of preventive care. So, you know, I think that, that put us back a while and I think we're still catching up. Women are still figuring out that they, that needs to be a priority, that they need to take time, um, to do that and to take care of themselves instead of waiting till something's wrong. Amy, can I ask, what does women's health mean to you? There's obviously lots of people who are listening to this. I think you're, you're getting ready to give us a little bit of a talk as to why we should be listening more. Such a good question. Um, and it's actually a hard question to answer. I think it means something probably a little bit different to lots of us. To me, women's health means power. And women's health means taking control of your health and your wellness and putting it into your own hands based on really solid knowledge. There's a lot of information out there. You can Google anything. You can follow anyone on social media. And there's a lot of people who are really, really smart and really good about telling you what they need, what you should know, and a lot of noise. (laughs) Um, I love one of my yoga teachers. She's phenomenal. You know, but she's not a wellness expert. She's She's a great yoga instructor, so she gives out a lot of advice. And sometimes, you know, at the end of the class when we're talking and you're like, oh, God, that's there's nothing scientifically based in what you're saying. But, you know, okay. Um, So to me, it means it means power. It means understanding how to sift through the noise and to take real control of your health and wellness. Um, Women in general are not great at putting themselves first. I think we're a lot better than our previous generations. But that's not, in in my opinion, that's not inherently our strong suit. So it's that idea of put you have to put your own mask on first. You can't take care of anybody else unless you are taken care of. And in order to do that, you got to look in the mirror and say, where is my health stand? And how am I going to keep myself healthy as best as I can what's in my control, knowing not all of it's in our control? And the other thing I think is really important in this part of the conversation, especially for women, is that our normal, our sort of baseline changes a lot. You know, when you think back, it, you're, you changed a lot during those years before puberty. Then you went through an enormous change during puberty. 
Then women go through almost a second puberty around 18 to 20 years old, where your body, your metabolism, your hormones change a lot again. And then we have this major shift from 20s to 30s. Then you have this, you know, if you're having children, this sort of pre, pre-birth and your post body, your body postpartum after children or after one kid, two, three, and your body really changes and its needs and its baseline change in terms of what feels normal, what looks normal, and what you need to do for yourself in order to get to that, you know, stay hovered around that that good place. And I think if we all take a, a little bit of time, you know what that good place is. You know when you feel good and you feel strong and you feel well. And I think that's the most important the most important aspect of what is wellness, finding it for yourself, being powerful over it, having the power over your wellness as opposed to the other way around, and having the really, really right knowledge so you can do that. Which leads really nicely on to our question around research, because, you know, you've indicated that there's lots of sources of information and even You know, there is research that proves certain things, but it's maybe the quality of that research. How does the foundation kind of align with the research that maybe you're supporting from a fundraising perspective or even from a topic or theme? It's hard, but we, one, I've been really lucky. I just have, I fell into a world of incredible people in this medical scientific field. And one has led to another. And, you know, there are, there are doctors, researchers, scientists who you read their research, you read their published research, you, re- you see how they are with, with patients with cl- in their clinics, and then you, you get a sense of what are they doing? Like, what are they after? What is their goal? What is their goal? And I think that really helps someone like me decide if that's somebody we should work with. Um, and we've worked with a lot of people that we don't work with anymore, not because they're not brilliant and smart and legitimate, but because it just doesn't fall under our cynics. And so we're going to, we're working on a consortium, um, in the Southern part of the United States to really get to those women, um, Mississippi, Georgia, a couple other States. It's all in the works, um, to give them really, really strong access to preventive care. So I'm really excited about that. And I think that will come in place, you know, in the next, it's starting to take place, but it'll be a few years before we can really get that, you know, fun, back in fundraise for that, get it funded and, and get it up and going. So those, those two things. Oh, about kind of linking in with schools and colleges and universities to kind of teach some of this content. I would love to do that, Joe. How about we would do that together? <laughs> to me, it's, it's so important to reach young women. And before they really have decided on what their health plan is for themselves and how to stay healthy. To me, it's that, that sweet spot of, of college-age girls who are figuring out who they are. They've just gone, like I said, gone through this sort of second puberty and their bodies have changed once again and it's helping them make good decisions that they can then be a habit for the rest of their lives. Um, Really interesting when we get in front of a group of women, the most animated sort of age range are the over 75-year-olds, which is kind of fascinating, who are having this resurgence of connection to their bodies They've been through menopause. They don't, you know, most, some, a lot of them are widows. They're said not so sexually active, 
but they're like, wait a second, I'm an active person and I've stopped going to the gynecologist because I didn't think I needed to anymore. And how do I fit that back into my life as a way to stay to stay strong as long as I can? Um, so those to me, those are like almost the two sweet spots, this sort of early young women and this sort of older women who are really interested. And to me, like you put me in front of a really interested woman who wants to talk about their wellness, I'm all for it. So Amy, we're coming to the end of the podcast and we always finish Rad Chat podcasts with top tips. So for any of our listeners, what top tips would you give? Well, as I kind of alluded to before, all women should have a gynecologist and it's somebody that you should see annually. And the other tip I would say is along those lines, be empowered to ask questions. Women in general don't ask questions and they don't like be, they're not, we are not adamant about what we want to know. And it's very intimidating being in a doctor's office and telling them something that might seem off because it feels like embarrassing or wrong. And it's empowering ourselves to really take control. So sometimes it's easy to, easier if you write it down, put it in the notes app on your phone so that you don't forget. And and ask those questions. It's our job to to advocate for ourselves, and like I said, to put your own life, your own you know, mask on first. So it's seeing a doctor. Um, if you don't have one, there's ways to find them, and you're welcome to go on the Lincoln Foundation website and email me. Um, and there's and then when you're in that office, to advocate for yourself and to say if something's wrong. And if you have a doctor, and this goes for all sorts of doctors who poo-poos you or tells you it's nothing and you know in your gut that something is not right, go see someone else. They are not, they have no idea what you are feeling and how your body is working the way that you do. And you need to be confident that you can get to the bottom of it and someone else might not see it. And that doesn't mean that it's not happening. There's obviously a fine line between, you know, being nuts and, you know, spending your whole life going crazy about something that might not be there. But we know, you know, we know when something's off, when something's wrong. And so, you know, you got it. You just got to be your own best advocate. That's that's really my my biggest advice. Oh, thank you so much. Perfect top tips for um, everyone listening. So a huge thank you again to our guest, Amy Kernetstein. Thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara, and Naman Joel Catterson. If you're utilizing this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Charlotte Buttercase, who will be discussing medical school and clinical immunology. So thank you all for listening and take care.